and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Red Productions Chief Executive Sarah Duell, Impact X Capital Partners Chief Executive Eric Collins, Rideback TV Incubator Executive Director Elsie Choi, and Unstoppable Film and TV Chief Exec Jason Mazza, talking to ITV Group Director of Diversity and Inclusion Ade Rawcliffe about authenticity in TV. Content London On Demand, the virtual version of C21's annual international TV conference, is taking place online this year, featuring a range of keynote speakers, panel discussions, case studies and exclusive digital premieres. Last week, Red Productions Chief Executive Sarah Duell, Impact X Capital Partners Chief Executive Eric Collins, Rideback TV Incubator Executive Director Elsie Choi and Unstoppable Film and TV Chief Exec Jason Mazza spoke with ITV Group Director of Diversity and Inclusion Ade Rawcliffe about how audience demand and appetite for authentic, original storytelling is growing and what leading players are doing to bring fresh stories and faces to screens across the world. 2020 has been an extraordinary year. I don't think any of us could have predicted what this year had in store for us at the beginning of the year. What with the pandemic that highlighted the sort of global inequalities in communities in a way we could never have imagined, then the horrific murder of George Floyd. I wonder if this is at last the impetus we have to change our industry for the better forever. So to discuss this and to discuss authenticity on screen, I have a brilliant panel here. Um, I have Elsie, I have Jason, I have Eric and I have Sarah and I'm going to go around and get them all to introduce themselves. So first of all, um, Elsie, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Elsie Choi. I'm the Executive Director of the MRC and Rideback TV Incubator. At the Incubator, we focus on helping mid-level underrepresented writers create premium cable and streaming TV shows. So our goal is to change the numbers both in front of and behind the camera. And we've also got Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah Dool. Um, I was previously Director of Global Drama at Fremantle, looking after drama around the world. I left earlier this year, uh, set up my own incubation company to really push diverse and underrepresented voices on telly and in all storytelling. And the last five weeks, I have the great job of being CEO at Red. So that's my role. Congratulations. Congratulations. Great company. Congratulations. Um, Eric. Hi, I'm Eric Collins, CEO and co-founder of a venture capital company called ImpactX Capital Partners. We invest as a double bottom line company to get financial returns as well as, as well as to make the world a better place through job creation. We invest in digital technology, health education and lifestyle and media and entertainment. In the category of media entertainment, we, do, we invest in direct series television. We currently have a slate of 12 projects that are ongoing. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that later. And finally, last but not least, we've got Jason. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Jason Mazza. Uh, I'm co-CEO uh, of Unstoppable Film and Television alongside my partner in crime, um, Noel Clark. We've sort of got a, a sort of a, a long history, really, in sort of promoting new talent and, and diverse talent and of shows such as like Bulletproof uh, on Sky and a whole sort of history of, of movies and stuff. So, so, yeah. Welcome. It seems to me that we've got everything. If we just all got together, we've got the investment, we've got the creatives, we've got the people that can make it. <laughs> We've got the talent spotters. If you just stop in, we've sorted it, haven't we? We just do it all between us. Well, anyway, so first of all, what have you made of 2020? How has this year been?
year been for you guys? Go on, who wants to go first? Um, Jason, you go on. How's it been? What have you made of this year? Best year ever. So <laughs> definitely <laughs> not. Definitely not. Couldn't have been further from that. Um, the most bizarre, strangest, sad, frustrating, you know, all of all of that. But, you know, I like to keep things positive as, as one can. And what I, I'm, I'm proud and I feel fortunate that we're in an industry that I think uh, is incredibly resilient, courageous, brave, and already, as I'm sure will come up in this call, are finding ways to battle through and keep creative and keep the future of television and film uh, moving forwards. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Eric? What, do you, what, what have you made of this year? It's been interesting for us because lockdown has been relatively productive. We're a venture capital fund, so we're just funding projects. And, we, and we're a new fund. And shutdowns really didn't affect any of our productions. We've been focused on diving into deep development with our slate of producers. We've optioned IP as well as provided legal script editing and graphic support. So our situation might differ if we were actually at the stage when we were in production. But right now, we're just preparing to pitch to the market. So for us, it was actually a time that we could, we could spend a bit more time doing some of the development stage, which makes such a difference uh, later on. Right. And Sarah, odd time to start a new job. Yeah, I know. I was just saying to the um, ladies at Studio Canal who recruited me that they don't actually know whether I've got a bottom half or not because they've only seen me from the top up, but I have. (laughs) (laughs) But I think think lockdown, it's been challenging because I think we all have to be resourceful and challenge ourselves to keep going. And and, and I feel actually in the last two weeks, that kind of energy is seeping away a bit, certainly in the UK environment. People are getting pretty depressed and pretty down but I think the real benefits are that you remember this time last year none of us could use a zoom if you wanted to pitch a show you had to get a meeting with the commissioning editor blah 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 and that would take four weeks and four months and you couldn't get one-to-ones with writers unless you met them face to face all of that is done on zoom so this morning for instance we had an amazing briefing from Gregor Sharp at BBC Comedy to our whole team on zoom for an hour we would never have got that in the old world so I think there's lots of positives yeah, and I think it's made people more accessible because we sort of know where everyone is. They're at home. So it's yeah. sort of easier to get hold of people. And I think these sort of geographical barriers have sort of been eroded slightly, haven't yeah. they, because of the way we're working now. Elsie, how's it been for you? It's, uh, yeah, I think it's like for everybody, it's been busy and it's been about navigating the new lows that happen every other day with world events or local events. We had to do our incubator writer rooms virtually, which I was quite nervous about because I'd never done that before, but it worked out really, really well. I was surprised at how easily the writers connected with each other and really built strong relationships and trust. So we're really happy with the outcome. When we think about when we think about our industry, and we all would agree, I think, that it's not as representative of its audiences as it should be. And I just wonder, why haven't we been better at embracing diversity? What, what are the barriers? What do you think? What do you think, Jason? Well, I think there's a, a few things. I think ultimately there are still only a few people that are in the position of, of real change and real power. And so, you know, there are only so many commission, commissioners that are in charge of what shows that we see. And I think for a long while that there's been a case of putting on the shows that they recognise in themselves and not necessarily what is representative of the world uh, and the UK. And so I think that's one issue. And I think the other issue potentially is that I think for a while, completely unfounded, there may have been a bit of, oh, I'm not sure that diversity sells. And in fact, that's the opposite of that. There's been so many pre- 
proven statistics, box office, that actually having a diverse cast will make your shows actually even more successful. And so I think it's a it's a sort of a hybrid of, of all of those things, um, to be honest. But I, I do think, as I say, we are in a position, just the reality is that a few, very select few people are making lots of decisions that ultimately dictate what the shows that we watch on TV. Is that your experience, Sarah? Because obviously you've worked in the industry for many years. Is that, yeah. do you agree with Jason? Yeah, look, when I started in the industry, which is a long time ago, the big problem was there weren't any women. That was a diversity problem. And, and in some territories like Germany, there are still no women on the TV boards or in high commissioning roles. So we've come a long way in women are allowed to voice their opinions now. <laughs> There's no stopping us. But I think you have to look back to, um, as Jason says, we're, we are still run by the establishment. And if you look at, say, uh, the upper echelons of TV, it's predominantly white men who have been to Oxford or Cambridge. That's how it's still recruited. And I just looked at a statistic before I came on. How many black students do you think there are across the whole university out of 21,000 students at Cambridge? And they're really proud of this, by the way, because it's gone up 50% this year. There's 300. Wow. So immediately, if you if you have that funnel that the people being selected to run the established TV um, environment are coming from already pre-selection, and then you've only got 300 people within that environment, I mean, it's just, you can see why it's just self-perpetuating in terms of the, the hierarchy and the establishment. Is it a similar experience in the US, Elsie? Oh, absolutely. Sadly, it is. I mean, we are all experiencing the same issues. And in the US, men have, they hold twice as many jobs as women. And it's very monochromatic across the board, I would say. Caucasians hold twice as many as minorities. So that's what we're dealing with here. Eric, you've actively, because I, I was reading about you and it was about investment. Predominantly investment doesn't go to people of colour. It doesn't go to women. And you've actively gone the opposite direction. So can you tell us a bit about what you've been doing? Impact, we're in a, we're in a field that is filled with great companies that you'll see all the time that are actually funded by venture capital. Google, funded by venture capital. Amazon, funded by venture capital. Facebook, funded by venture capital. Netflix, venture, uh, funded by venture capital. All of these companies that are part of the lexicon of our world and they're part of the vocabulary and are even part of the world of entertainment, we find that all of those have come from a particular space. One of the things you'll notice about all those organizations is they don't differ very much from what this group is talking about with respect to who are the commissioners and who are the decision makers. Those are all organizations that were started by, run by, funded by white men. And that, that is something which is, you know, completely throughout the system. We thought we were going to find something different when we decided that we were going to do something a little different, not only invest in the next Netflix or invest in the next Amazon, but when we started to invest in direct-to-series television, we thought that there would be an opportunity and we'd see greater numbers around us. But it does seem as though there's that network effect, which affects why Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg get funding. The same reason why Julian Fellows or whomever else you want to name get funding to actually have projects and that there is a dearth of then funding or individuals who are willing to fund others. So ImpactX came because of that market inefficiency and said, we're going to take care of this. We can do, we can buy IP. We can then actually uh, take the most risky portion of the deal cycle. And that is the development portion. We can pay for that in whole part. And then we can go out and talk to these organizations that are the distributors about what we're going to do. And that's what we found to be the most effective, trying to go in and then talk 
to commissioners, we think is another level of difficulty. But going and taking our finished product to other organizations, then we think that that's probably the better and least resistant way to go. Because Netflix, Amazon, as well as HBO are looking for content. So I guess you, we, we talk about the creative case, we talk about the business, business case. What you're saying is you're talking about the investment case. Well, certainly what we what we think about, is we are investors. We're looking for the same type of return from content when we have content created as we do when we are creating the next uh, Uber. We want a 3x to 100x return on our capital in a relatively short period of time. And we think that you can actually do that. And we think we're proving that out in the content creation space. But I think more importantly for this conversation, Ade, is we're also proving that representation, if we take the development stage and fund that, we can actually make sure that representation is built into the very bedrock and the DNA of these projects, that we look for diverse production companies. We will only invest in projects with those diverse production companies and take those forward. We are very, very singularly focused in that respect because we believe that there are fantastic narratives there and interesting stories to be told and that there's a huge demand for it, which can actually help us to get the returns for which we're looking. You put forward talent both on and off screen, don't you? Um, you know, people of colour as part of your packaging. Oh, for sure. When we're working with Little Black Book, we're working with Tudor House, we're look, working with uh, Three Tables, we actually make sure that as part of what we're doing in terms of the stories that we're actually helping to develop and the IP that we're purchasing, including a bestseller from the New York Times bestseller list that we just finished up that acquisition yesterday, we are making sure that from beginning to end that that is actually baked into the equation and that all along as we think about then who we're going to attach in terms of talent, whether they be writers, whether they be directors, whether they be actors, that all of that sort of follows the same sort of premise. Even the lawyers who work on the deals, we make sure that they're diverse too. There's a whole way in which we believe that there is an ecosystem around and we need to actually fund the ecosystem and keep on feeding into the ecosystem from all angles and that that actually has the way of building an empowerment circle. Well, Jason, you're, you you have a great example with Bulletproof. So that is a show with two diverse leads, got a very diverse production team and writers. I mean, is that an example of what we should be doing more of? And tell us about the journey of getting that onto screen. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a prime example in that it took probably five to six years to get that show made and that and we did have and Noel talks about this this story a lot in the creation of, of that journey it was sort of gone through different various incarnations but one incarnation was incarnation of it was a movie and a studio literally said to us no listen if you lose Ashley and we replace Ashley with a white actor the film's funded like they said that in a meeting and Noel was like it's Ashley or there is no there's no show like that that's it that's the in the show that's what it's about that's the whole point of it you know and I think the fact that you look at Bulletproof and you go that's a show the reason why that was important to us is that you're actually putting two black leads that's one thing but also two black positive role models on screen which we don't tend to do in the UK it's like oh you're a black lead you're a drug dealer or you're the villain and it's like that that was so important about that show and it took a journey it took time I think Unstoppable I think that's probably our problem we are always thinking probably five years ahead of what most other companies are, are in the UK and therefore really the commissioners and so it takes us a little while to get to that point where they go yeah we probably should do that you know that probably could work now we feel like it's the right time but yeah so that was a very you know long and slow process but then you see the show and it's like on the CW network in America and it's one of Sky's biggest shows you know it's like if you'd have asked me I would have said from day one I really believe this show is going to great take great ratings no, brilliant example and so the Elsie at Rideback you have a very specific way of developing writers could you tell us a bit about that yeah so through the incubator what we do is we have 
have underrepresented writer, TV writers that we work with who have previously staffed. This year, we chose four writers who were executive story editor and, and above. And we paired each one with a high-level EP or showrunner to help mentor them. They're not paid. They are complete givers who give back and want to help these underrepresented creators go farther, faster. And then the writers work together in a writer's room and develop not only their idea, but they help develop uh, their colleagues' ideas. So they're creating their own show and developing three other shows at the same time. And then by the end of the six-month period, they uh, have completed a TV pilot. Have you been through the whole process yet? Have you, do you know if this has been successful or so, not yet? So we're in our second year. We're currently packaging two projects from year one. And for the second year, the writers are uh, currently in their second draft. So we pay them $200,000 to write a pilot, and that's uh, two drafts and a polish. See, for, for us, I mean, I'm, I'm in the UK, $200,000 sounds like quite a lot of money. That's quite a big, that's quite a big investment. Can you just explain why it's so much? Or is it, the, why, because clearly you're backing this in a very big way. Yeah, well, our studio is that we're paired with. We are working with MRC, so they're known for Ozark, The Great, House of Cards. They're fantastic partners. We, along with MRC, really value underrepresented writers and we believe it's good business. So that's why we're working with them. And we were able to convince the non-writing EPs to um, their mentors to also put in the time to help shape this next generation of creators. Brilliant. It sounds fantastic. And Sarah, tell us a bit about this because obviously you've got, um, you're working at Red, but you also set up something called Sow the Seed, which is also to develop a diverse talent. Yeah. I mean, it came... um, it, it kind of developed in my head over the um, the last year and it was kind of inspired by a meeting two years ago that I had nearly to the day with Ratman, Andrew. And he came into my office and I just thought he was amazing and the way he was telling stories. And he tells stories that are full on drama with great cast that he funded himself. He raised all the money, but it's done in a rap dialogue. And when you think about it, after I had met him, I thought this sounds a bit weird but I thought well Shakespeare did it in verse didn't he so what if Ratman's the next Shakespeare anyway we got we got on really well and I really wanted to do a project with him and he'd made his shows at a a very low level of cost anyway unfortunately the next day Jay-Z sent a plane for him picked him up (laughs) and flew him to LA and before the weekend that weekend he'd been signed by Jay-Z so I just missed out but I loved the idea that he was doing it for himself because he told me he said I couldn't get anybody at the BBC or anywhere else to listen to my ideas so I thought you know what I'm just going to do it myself and his da- his um, Shiloh story got I think 14 million downloads on YouTube so on the back of that I thought if we don't start developing and giving an outlet for these voices and helping them through the various stages you know what we're going to be dinosaurs in five years time or less as TV producers because they don't even need our level of the industry to, to tell the best stories they're doing it for themselves across all levels of ethnicity and diversity and you because of the iPhone now you don't even need a full crew to make it so 
it's a really, really exciting time. And I thought, I've got to get a grasp of this and find where that new talent is, grow them to a certain level in my little seed pots, <laughs> and then go and partner with one of the goods production companies that I've worked with over the years. And let's get, instead of talking about it, let's get this motoring now. You, you've all sort of mentioned the sort of commissioning process in passing yeah. about, you know, having to go to the buyers. Do you think there's a disconnect between the, what the buyers want and what the audience want? And how do we close that? I totally think there's a disconnect. Um, as Jason said, they want to put on screen, which I suppose is quite natural, stories about themselves. But meanwhile, there's a massive audience out there that's seeing nothing of themselves on screen. And I think we talked last week that there has been a breakthrough in terms of advertising. Because now when you look at the brands on ITV or Channel 4, there's much more diversity in the marketing of product. Now, to me, that's a really big moment because mm-hmm. if it's happening in the very commercial world, I think that will start to seep down. Because at the end of the day, unfortunately, TV is about creativity, but it's also about cash and money and a business incentive. So we have to tell stories for the widest possible audience. You know, I, I, I definitely think there is that disconnect. I'll give you an example. We One of the most successful things that we've done at the company is be a part of our trilogy, which is Kidulthood, Adulthood and Brotherhood. They took gross 10 million in the UK box office, you know, millions and millions of DVDs and downloads. And we're making a TV show and no one in the UK currently wants to, to make that TV show. Now, we were pitching this two years ago before the real recognisation that we need to make much bigger change. You know, we're about to start, and I'll get onto this story, on, mon- on Monday, a writer's room. We're actually financing the show ourselves now. But the, the writer's room is, you know, 100% diverse uh, uh, the talent. It's going to be diverse directors. And th- we were talking about this two and a half years ago. It's one of the biggest franchises that we have in the UK for a young audience. Everyone wants a young audience. It's going to absolutely blitz the ratings and not one person in the UK wanted to make that show. If this was in America, and again, I know America is still not perfect, but there would have been a bidding war. We'd have had every studio saying to us, offering us silly money. And we have now had to go and raise the money privately to make the show. And it's like, if that's not an example of a disconnect in terms of what the audience want and what the commissioners would like to commission, I don't know what is. I really do believe, I agree with everything which has been said. And this is one of the most encouraging conversations I've had in the creative space. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be a co-panelist here. One of the things that I don't think that we appreciate or we talk about a lot is sort of the question of risk. When I'm thinking about, am we are we going to develop the next vaccine? It's all about risk and people are willing to invest substantially in risk because the risk reward, they've seen the examples of risk reward and it paying off huge. I think we've also seen that in the creative spaces. However, I think when we do get to commissioners, the risk seems to be a risk of making a mistake, losing my job. Whatever those risks are, they're just so overwhelming that it doesn't allow that creativity to, to, to expand beyond their sort of own little blinders of what has been done in the past. I've seen that. I'm not an expert like you are. I haven't spent decades in this particular industry, but as an external person who invests And as I think about what I hear, I'm constantly hearing the story about I cannot take risk. The the risks which are possible, the people to whom I have to answer, the audience that is expected, those people will not allow me to take risk. And that's one of the things that allows us to stay within that same sort of echo chamber, the same sort of limited number of choices, of perceived choices, and the same number of answers to the question, what shall we put before an audience? Always the same answer, the same thing. There's also inherent laziness that just is factored into it of just wanting to get the easy option or the easy list or 
you know, the easy, yes, it's, it's, you know, is everybody being overworked, I guess they just are going for the quickest and easiest options, but that's why we're in the state that we're in right now. And I agree with you, Sarah, you just have to look at TikTok or Instagram and other platforms that are gobbling up eyeballs. And we, as a community, we have to compete with that. I, I think that's what a lot of our colleagues forget. We're I did. I had two um, amazing black podcasters at a conference earlier this year. Um, It's Poet and Marvin from Three Shots of Tequila. And they do a weekly podcast individually. They've got their own podcasts and they get millions of downloads. It's it's about football and storytelling for men around football, really reaching that kind of difficult to get male audience, which ITV would die for, wouldn't they? (laughs) And um, yeah, at the end of uh, at the end of the session, one of the producers came up to me and said yeah that was very interesting Sarah but it's very niche isn't it and I said uh, hold on a minute they're getting a million downloads you would die for that audience an audience of an engaged audience of that on a channel four drama wouldn't you I mean that would be really good ratings and the other thing just to say on that is these guys and ladies understand their audience because they are dealing with them every minute people are sending them messages and communicating with them how often do we as senior program makers actually communicate with an audience directly I think we could learn a lot and that would help break it down as well there's a mutual respect there too because you are engaging with your audience so much that you you really are in an exchange and and a relationship with them yeah and you can push the boundaries then they were just about to start a a really great idea which was learn with three shots and they were going to take a subject each week that their audience might not know about and get somebody interesting in and talk so it's almost educational if you see what I mean but that I thought that was quite exciting because that had come from their audience feedback as we look for solutions i want to say but when i when we were talking elsie i was really struck about you say talking about the experience of the 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 diverse writers on shows if it's not handled properly some of the sort of dangers of what we can do around sort of not making the most of that talent yeah Yeah. i mean what i'd love because we all know that that happens because that's why we have the numbers that we do right now but you know i do think that there are very easy solutions to combat that I think you could hire at the upper levels, making sure that there are inclusive writers that you're hiring um, because then they have more creative agency and decision-making power. And then quotas, even though they're not the most popular thing, but general parameters like hiring 50% women and BIPOC are very simple to understand and they can work as internal hiring processes. And then also I think just there are a lot of issues around bias that can be reduced simply by training and supporting managers appropriately. A lot of um, creative talent, uh, especially because the demand uh, for showrunners these days, they get catapulted into these management positions without proper training. And it's no wonder that they, as well as their colleagues, suffer for it. I mean, now we sort of, we've talked about what an extraordinary year 2020 is, but generally, are you feeling optimistic about the future? Do you think this is a, a moment of change? Well, a time to change. How are you guys all feeling? This is, you know, in- Impact X, we're trend oriented, right? So we're looking at the trends. We know that there's a lot of trend in digital technology. We know there's a lot of trend in health, education, and lifestyle, but we certainly know, and just from uh, COVID and response and sitting at home and other sorts of things being locked down, that there is a trend uh, toward content. And within the world of content, content which is serialized, uh, direct to series, 
television is, you know, having such a, a renaissance. It has, it's having such a, a sort of a, a run in the world. So we believe that that run is going to continue for years to come, that even with the presentation of things like TikTok, which we love, things like um, Facebook and self-generated content, that we actually do, or user-generated content, we actually do believe that content that is based on stories and good story and narrative and high production value still is a very, very effective market. And as the price of production comes down further and further, as Europe and the UK seems a very different alternative, as you said, Ade, the numbers that are being talked about as LA-oriented versus the UK-oriented or Europe-oriented are so different that there are advantages to actually investing in this particular marketplace and developing story and developing series here. So for us, we, we are a trend-oriented organization. We believe the trends are in favor of what's happening here in Europe and content just in general in the world and international and diverse content with lots of representation. All those are trends which are going to run for a bit. Are you feeling that as well, Jason? Because, you know, you're the ones that are going around pitching and doing that. Are you feeling the opportunity of now are unstoppable? Yeah, de- look, definitely, things are definitely changing. And um, and I think, to be fair to the commissioners, they've seen that actually the time is now and the time to sort of actually, let's stop talking about it, let's do some doing is, is happening. And so I do feel positive about that. I and mean, we've had some great experience, you know, Polly Hill ITV, for example, have been incredibly supportive of our company and no and actually there's been a number you know sky and stuff so so you know definitely um but i think the thing is is that we just have got to still keep being accountable and still keep pushing the boundaries and still keep having the conversations and to say it, it's i'm not going to pretend that it's going to change like that because it's not and it's going to be a continual conversation and you know as a company we we can only take responsibility of what of what we want to do you know we know that by trying to take a new writer that's from a diverse background that we're giving ourselves a bigger challenge because it's going to be harder for the commissioners to take that chance but we're not going to change that and so we're just going to keep making ourselves accountable and, and pushing forward What about you Sarah starting at Red do you feel this is an opportunity, opportunity Yeah I think you know when we look back on this in the continuum of history this is the great pause isn't it you know we've pressed the pause button and we've now got to reset everything and even after nine months that old world seems thousands of years ago do you know what I mean and I think that's a really good chance for us to say this is the new normal no arguments like Jason says this is the way we're doing it and no excuses let's just get on with it it's just the way the world is now and if you don't keep up with that world and that train that's heading forwards telling great stories because there's huge demand for storytelling then you're going to get left behind in lots of ways but especially commercial ways what about you Elsie I am hopeful I will say through the incubator I always say we're only working on one half of the equation, uh, working with the creators, but the other half of the equation is who they sit across the table from. So the executive ranks, I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done on that half of the equation because when diverse creators are sending in their scripts or, or pitching a project, the notes they get back can sometimes be whitewashed, to be blunt. And that is something that I think the buyers need to work on. They need a little more inclusion in their executive ranks, but it definitely is getting better. Absolutely. So are you, so are we saying that the, the authentic storytelling voice still has a, a challenge or a journey to get through to screen and there are still barriers in the way. Is that what you're saying, Elsie? Absolutely. And it's not just development, even in production. So it's across the board, even in marketing. Shows tend to be reviewed by older white males 
sales, you know, and that impacts the reach to audience or the support of a show and finding its audience. So the whole system needs to be looked at. And I think it's about having tough conversations with our colleagues. And in the small moments, I really believe that's where the big change will happen. I think the, you know, the one thing that the next, I hate saying next generation of viewers, but the the huge consumers of content absolutely want in their storytelling is authenticity. And mm-hmm. they can sniff out inauthentic and stereotype characters, you know, like a police sniffer dog. So, you know, at the end of the day, the consumers will vote with their eyeballs if we're not providing them with stories that feel real, with characters that you might believe in or, or are your friends or your colleagues. And, and I think that is the future. Well, authenticity, Eric, how much does that matter to you as an investor? A, a great deal. If you think about investment as investment and then return, you can get a much better return, we find, if there's uh, authenticity in terms of values and in terms of approach. And in this situation, in terms of representation, organizations that have alignment and continuity along all that spectrum actually tend to do better for us in our portfolio. Maybe not for others, but for us in our portfolio, it translates into higher return on investment. I would I would say when I listen to uh, our, the thoughts that I have and what others are on the panel are talking about, I really do see all of these areas of systemic racism or systemic sexism that just create, even though ImpactX might be doing everything it wants to do in terms of the development portion, but if it runs into someone who then is a distributor and that distributor says, we want to change a few things about this so it's much more acceptable or we think it's better and you know we'll give you lots of money if you'll just do a few things, it really requires a tenacity, a constant vigilance. And often being at odds in what hopefully is a collegial process. And that makes it very challenging, particularly for young voices, new voices, voices that want to get in who don't necessarily have that power to be able to then navigate that entire process from beginning to end. I'm surprised anything ends up being authentic because quite frankly, unless you're showing on BET in the United States, is there another commissioner that's not a white commissioner in the world? And so you're in, well, in the Western world. And so you're sort of sitting in this compromised position all the time. And it's a question of how we push consistently and how we remain authentic. So Ade, when you say, is authenticity important? It's absolutely critical in representation. Does it help to get better returns? It absolutely does help to get better returns. Is it challenging, particularly if we're looking at young people? We're looking at Viola Davis being authentic. We're looking at Denzel Washington being authentic from end to end. That's one thing. If we look at um, uh, Ava DeVorne, that's maybe a different thing. But then when we're looking at young people, and that's often what we're looking at, then we have to try and figure out a way to actually support them throughout the process from end to end. How do you negotiate? Because you must have that challenge all the time, Jason, with your projects. How do you navigate that whole process from the sort of the idea, the creative idea to be realised on screen in a way that you feel is authentic with the original idea? It's really tough, um, I'll be honest, because we've always been drawn, as I say, since we first started Unstoppable, to we never sat down and said, oh, these are the stories that we really want to be making. We just looked at the people that we like working with and the the world that we socialize in and the world that we live in and great stories that's it 
And so, but to navigate that is, is incredibly, is incredibly difficult. I suppose for us, we are still relatively new in the TV space. I think there's probably a reason why we started off in film because you can take a lot of the responsibility yourself. I'm not necessarily reliant on studios. I can privately fund. And so what's happening in the TV space is that this for now is about proving ourselves. And we're doing that now with a number of shows. And hopefully that gives the commissioners more trust in us and trusting us that we will be able to take these new writers with great, fresh stories and bring them on, onto the screen. We've all always had a great track record in finding an audience but again it's interesting I find that especially in the UK is that sometimes it doesn't feel like even though it, it is and they talk about it I don't know if rating sometimes a hundred percent the at the forefront because for me it's all about well finding the biggest audience for the show that that's how we with all of our shows I always feel like how can we find and make this show as possible as popular as possible and how can we get as many eyes on it as possible and so I think it's about also trying to just keep pushing that and having that conversation with, with the commissioners. But yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say it, it's easy. And we say we, we're just trying to take the responsibility on ourselves as a company to go, well, let's grow. Let's let's show that we're doing great work, that we're, that we're producing great stories. And hopefully that makes those conversations easier. And for you, Elsie, is it about growing writers who are going to work on the biggest shows for the biggest audiences? Is that what you're trying to do as well? We really want them to create their own shows. So we want to help them own their voice because when you're staffed, as a writer, you're professionally writing in somebody else's voice. You're getting paid to write in somebody else's voice. So uh, there is a, a transition they make personally and professionally going from writing in somebody else's voice to discovering what their, their voice is and what they're willing, what hills are they willing to die on creatively. So we also, we really do build a community of experienced pros around them to help guide them through that process. And then we also have industry veterans like Betsy Beers or Greg Berlanti, Vina Sood, and many executives at all the premium cable and streaming places come and speak to our creators to help them understand the business and the craft and how to avoid any mistakes that they've made. And you've talked about that, Eric, as well, about when you when you have newer talent, it's about how you package it so that it is most likely to return on investment. Correct. Don't, don't, don't you think, though, Ade, I'm sort of saying, how do we make it more acceptable? How do we actually get rid of the risk factors? That's what we're doing, right? We're trying to minimize the perceived risk that is being taken by whoever is the distributor because we're the ones who will be going to, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. That's what we do, or the BBC or Channel Plus, whatever it is. So we're trying to actually minimize some of the risk that they will find a problem and that instead what they will focus on is the uh, track record of who's associated and that track record then being able to say, well, there's an easy glide path to how this fits within our norms and our activities and actions and our audience. And therefore, we'll be able to say yes. And so that, you know, it's a, just a risk mitigation strategy for us. But it's an important yes. I think there's a couple of really important points that Eric's made about the risk factor. And, you know, Noel talks about this a lot in terms of how do we get the commissioner? It's easy now as a commissioner to support someone like Michaela Cole because she's had loads of success. But it's about first commissioning Michaela Cole before she's Michaela Cole. And like you say, Eric, it's about it's almost like we'd love to have these commissions go, well, you have to, you know, you have to spend a certain amount of money on 
biodiverse talent. That's just, you have to. And they have no pressure on that. They, you know, if you want to wrap it up as these are risky shows, which ironically, they won't be risked at right. all. Do successes. But if that's what we need to do to go, you're not going to lose your job, guys. It's fine. This is your risk portfolio of young talent, but you have to spend it. Yeah. I, you know, something like that, I think would probably create a lot of change because what, what's clear is there is this perceived risk, which none of us lot here see it as risk. But unfortunately, some of the people in, in power do. So it's about navigating that. Yeah, that's there's cool. risk involved in everything that across the board, it doesn't matter if it's coming from an old white male or, you know, a young Asian female. I mean, there's risk always when you are creating projects, but I think they're just so used to the risk when it involves older white male. They're I just think the thing is, though, the, the idea of risk in television is, ironically, the shows that are the most risky and then become a success aren't just little successes, they're massive. So Michaela yeah. Cole, we sold that all around the world for much, much more than it costs to make it. <laughs> and the same with, you know, if you look at something like Fleabag, that's, that's not diverse, but, you know, that was a massively risky commission at the time. So if you get that risk factor right, it doesn't go like that. It goes like this. And and that's what we've got to believe in. And I I think our job as program makers is to go to broadcasters and our customers and say, you don't know that you need this show yet, but you do, because it could transform your network. So if you look at something like AMC, they were doing nothing until Mad Men came along. They took a risk on it and it could have gone horribly wrong, but it didn't. And it defined their network. It changed their whole perception in the industry. It changed their whole economic. So I I think we've just got to kind of, instead of going to the broadcasters with the same thing each time, but just wrapped up in a different comfortable way, we have to go in and say, you need this because it's going to be a hit because we believe in it, but also it's going to push your audience on for you and or grow your audience or be the show that everybody talks about around the water cooler, whatever the benchmarks are. But it's about belief, isn't it? And I think the other thing which I think is so fascinating about that statement, Sarah, is that when I don't think happens, which I see in the world in which I exist most of the time, where most of my portfolio exists, we actually go through heavy analysis as to what is the future forecast associated with what we're we're being asked to invest in. So someone tells us there's a new insure tech company and it's going to, or there's a new challenger bank. They come to us and say, there's a new challenger bank. This is, we're a new challenger bank. We have a great new idea. This is how we're going to acquire customers. These are the costs that are going to be associated. And this is going to be the outcome. And by year five, we're going to have a value that's 300 million where we have a value of zero today. They actually lay out and make it very attractive. What is that future going to look like? We do the same thing with our creative projects. Our creative projects have to return. It's not as though it's a hope. It's like, oh, I hope this works. It's like, it's got to work. So it's got to work by the numbers. So then, so one of the things that we're bringing to the industry is we're bringing forward an approach, which is just like if you wanted to create the next Amazon, how do you create the next Amazon when there's just a piece of something written on a napkin? You actually have forecasts and other sorts of things that are done by the person who's bringing the idea. And in this situation, it's us in association with the production company. It's a little different, but we find that if in doing that, we then are able to also get people to say, I understand the risk that I'm taking. I understand the financial outlay, which is possible. And this is beyond the Bible. We do the Bible yeah, too, yeah. but this is before the Bible happens. We do that in terms of getting, putting the money together and saying, this is the money which is going to require, and this is the outcome that you're expecting in this period of time. So that's a good return or a poor return. Do you get any resistance from creatives about one, about doing it that way? Absolutely. Every day. You know, like I, I didn't, I didn't become a creative in order to do maths. That's what I hear. <laughs> 
Elsie, so you've been working for a long time to improve representation, inclusion, diversity in this in this industry. What what I'd like to know is examples of best practice. Who can we learn from? Who's doing this really well? And what mm. would be the one or two things that would make all the difference if we could change them now? I would say on the uh, showrunner side of things, uh, having worked with Glenn Mazzara, um, Dara Resnick, Amy Berg, Greg Berlanti, they really are doing amazing things uh, on their shows and and uh, getting involved and in trying to understand what the numbers look like and getting studies done. And they're really pushing the conversation forward. So I really appreciate the work that they're doing. I would say on the executive side or on the buy side, I know that Netflix and another studio, what they do at the beginning of every staff meeting is they discuss inclusive voices and then invite colleagues to join their general meetings so that everyone can start supporting those voices. So I find that to be a great practice. And what, what would make all the difference if we could just change to one or two things to make our industry more accessible and more equal? What would what, what would be what would they be? I think that everyone just has to have an open mind and think beyond their own experience. That to me is where it all starts. At least start with yourself and open up open up your mind. Jason, I think it's about ac- accountability, and I think that what was great about the BLM movement was a lot of people came out publicly and made a statement and sort of talked about it and. And that was great. But I was also a little bit frustrated about that. And I, and I posted something at the time and it, it was just about saying, it's all great. Let's talk about it, but let's do something. And we had an example on a show that, that Noel was on where we were not the leading production company on it. Um, and it transpired that there just wasn't enough for us diversity on that set. And it was a very frank conversation on, 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 on day one. And that was changed. And then six trainees were then brought onto that production and they spent eight weeks on that show and have potentially completely changed, changed their lives. And so I, my feeling is, is that people that are in a position of power, any, any type of power where you can have a conversation, you take that responsibility. And there's lots of movie stars out there that came out. Next time you're on your, your Hollywood movie set and you look around, it's not, you, you can't be an enabler. It's time to go, look guys, this is not the world that I live in and, and this needs to change and it's going to change tomorrow those people can make huge monumental changes and so i'm imploring everyone to just sort of try and um, not be an enabler and try and be accountable for, for, for those things sarah well i don't think you should underestimate your role at itv actually to have um no seriously to have a female on the board is brilliant but you've got a female chief executive and then yeah. to have somebody at group level corporate group listed level whose responsibility is diversity and inclusion i don't don't know many big corporations that have got that certainly not in the media and I think that's a real start because it has to come from top down to say come on get on with it and then the creativity has to come from bottom up and I think on the creative side we have to listen and instead of saying to our talent this is the story I want you to tell which has been the traditional way we say what is the story that you feel passionate about and how can I help you make it Eric the one thing that I would like to see is what is the focus of this panel. It's representation. And I believe it's representation in front of the camera, which we have all talked about. And I believe that there's more of an embrace of that. I'm equally interested in representation behind the camera, all those sorts of roles, sort of what Jason was talking about, uh, and making sure that there are that there is a deliberate approach and that there is a statement made and a stink raise if indeed that is not existing and the change be made immediately. And that the other 
piece is I also want to see all the supporting functions. I want to see all the agents and others. I want to see that same thing happening such that the world in which we're existing and that we're trying to create on screen is also supported by the world that's really out there and that that's represented all around. So I do want to see representation in a 360 degree way. So I do want to see commissioners. I do want to see heads of uh, studios. I want to do see heads of production companies. I want to see heads of departments on productions. I want to see the lawyers. I want to see the accountants. I want to see the agents. I want to see the actors. I want to see the writers. I want to see the showrunners. I want to see all of that to be representative. When that happens, then I, do, I believe what we don't have to do is have a conversation about trying to retrofit an industry and running into various pockets that we never even knew that there were these problems around systemic racism and sexism, but that indeed we would have a very different looking and a different producing industry. And that's what I would say is most important. Now, I mean, from my point of view, I think that, you know, we've all been talking about this for a long period of time and the speed of change has been too slow for us all. But what I get now is a much greater sense of urgency and it's being driven by the younger generation. I mean, I've got friends who are teachers and the kids were saying, we're not coming back to school until you've changed the curriculum to include us. We want to change by next week. And I feel that sense of urgency that we maybe have been too patient, but I think the generations below us are not going to be so patient. So I'm optimistic for the future, but there needs to be more accountability and we have to do what we say we're going to do rather than just talk about it. Sarah Dool, Eric Collins, Elsie Choi and Jason Mazza talking to Addie Rawcliffe. Remember, if you're a C21 Pro subscriber, you can watch the full video version of that interview on our site right now as part of Content London On Demand. There'll be more from the event in the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>